0: You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit to NakedBiblePodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're
1: new to the podcast and Dr. Heiser's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at NakedBiblePodcast.com.
0: Welcome to the Naked Bible podcast, episode 70, our 6th question and answer show. I'm your layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey Mike, how you doing this week?
1: Very good, back from Missouri and, you know, in the routine now for a little while and just feels good to to be in the routine. I, I like routine, what can I say?
0: <laughs> yeah, how did Missouri go?
1: Uh, I, I thought it went really well. It was a lot of fun. Uh, did the thing at the university and then also went to uh to film Skywatch TV. Uh, some listeners will be familiar with that and uh, spent some time with Tom Horn and Derek and Sharon Gilbert. That was a lot of fun.
0: Awesome. Well, great. Well, we've got about probably six or seven questions. Mm-hmm. So why don't we just dive right into the questions, Mike? Sounds good. And our first one's from Matthew, and he wants to know... Is there a link between the reconstituted divine council of glorified believers and the Catholic understanding of the intercession of the saints?
1: Yeah, that this is actually a good question. Um, like if you think of Hebrews 12, uh, Hebrews 12, 1, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. I tend to think that ideas like that, the cloud of witnesses, and some other things I'll mention here in a minute uh, are glorified believers or at least include glorified believers and that sort of takes us into this this uh, idea you know of intercession indirectly uh, again, what I mean by that is if you look at this concept of the cloud of witnesses and that they are actually glorified believers, they're not just angels. Uh, I think that's coherent because the witnesses again the cloud of witnesses in Hebrews 12, is linked back to the preceding chapter. I mean, chapter 12, verse 1 says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, well, what's he talking about? He's talking about Hebrews 11, the so-called hall of faith. And everybody in the hall of faith are people. They're not angels. They're not divine beings. So in some sense, these people who are, again, glorified are the witnesses that The writer of of the book of Hebrews is talking about here. Now you get other ideas like that in the book of Revelation. You know, John sees the elders again; they're they're cast as as people offering the prayers of you know God's people up to God. That's Revelation five around verse eight. Angels also apparently uh, intercede for people, so it's not you know always just glorified believers that have some sort of uh, intercessory role uh, for people down here. Uh, You can also get this with angels. Uh, Revelation 8, Matthew 18, 10, uh, conveys that sort of idea. Uh, But if you're listening, you're thinking, well, that, you know, that doesn't really sound like intercession of the saints, you know, that idea. And I would agree with that. I mean, there's nothing specifically said in Hebrews 12, for instance, about the cloud of witnesses making intercession. It is you know implied in Revelation 5, and then Revelation 8, Matthew 18, and a few other places. So the idea, even though it's not immediately in Hebrews 12, again the cloud of witnesses idea, it is sort of hinted at elsewhere. But none of that is really endorsing the Catholic articulation of the idea of the intercession of the saints, because that idea in Catholic theology is linked with the flawed notion of the redistribution of merit, okay? So the Catholic idea that you, inter- you, know, you you pray to the saints, why? Because the saints are going to have something to do with either bolstering your merit, giving you merit, giving you some of their merit, you know, in relationship to salvation, and the, uh, the idea of, of meriting salvation, Uh, whether through your own works or somebody else's works that are sort of stored up and then they have some to share, uh, I think is, is patently unbiblical. And it, you know, having said that though, the idea of this intercession, this, this sort of thing going on, that I, I do think is biblical and it is part of this divine council thinking. Now, I want to try to sort of lay this out a, a little bit, uh, without getting into too much detail, but the cloud language is interesting. And again, this intercession idea from like Revelation 5 is interesting because of some things in the Old Testament that, again, have to do with the, the divine council, the heavenly throne room uh, idea. For instance, in Psalm 89, around verse 38, we have a reference to uh, the witness in the clouds who ratifies or approves uh, the Davidic covenant. Now, a, num- a number of scholars you know, have addressed this and have have seen this language and commented on it. Uh, if you've contributed to the Divine Council bibliography, I'll give you a heads up here uh, when that is eventually made available to you. But there are two articles, one by Theodore Mullen, who uh, has done a lot of work on the Divine Council, and another one, the last name of the author is Veola, V-E-I-J-O-L-A. They both take the witness of the clouds as being a Divine Council member. And you could read those articles to, to figure out why. It, it really, the, sort of the, the, the quick version, Version here is in ancient covenants, and again, Psalm 89 is the Davidic covenant. In ancient covenants, the, the, the gods of, of the council were often called on as witnesses. And they are described uh, either as heavenly ones or as gods, or that you'll actually see cloud language, you know, show up in some of these covenant treaties. And so uh, Mullen and Viola are looking back on, again, th- this kind of language and saying, you know, and, and doing some exegesis in the text as well, saying that this this language Points us in the direction of the witness in the clouds being a divine council member. Now, Veola actually argues in his article that the witness is Yahweh himself, you know, witnessing his own covenant valid, being a, being a a witness or a testimony, a validation to his own covenant. And that actually opens up the whole two Yahwehs idea that I talk a lot about in the unseen realm and you know other other places on my blog. So, it, it's kind of interesting that that you have this sort of language and the other passage I would refer people to would be Job 16. Uh, Job 16:19 again, for this idea of intercession for believers that happens you know, in the clouds, i.e. in the divine throne room, in, in, in the place of the divine council. Job 16:19 through 20, uh, 21 says this, uh, just listen closely. Job says, Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God, that He would argue the case of a man with God, as a son of man does with his neighbor. So it's this reference to some sort of witness, some sort of advocate uh, in the in the heavens, in the clouds, in the presence of God. In other words, in the divine counsel for believers right now. And it's kind of interesting that, in turn, uh, helps us or encourages us to think maybe a little bit differently about the advocate language in 1 John used about Jesus. Uh, and of course, that takes us mentally back into the book of Hebrews chapter 2, though, when believers are presented to the, quote, congregation, to the council, uh, you know, where there, there's this sort of scene where Jesus identifies with us, these are the children that you've given me, and he introduces you know, us to God and God to us and that sort of thing. To the congregation, not just God, but to the congregation, to the whole council. I and mean, I talk about that in the unseen realm as well. So I would, I would say, yeah, you know, this this idea again the, the, that believers who are glorified replace or reconstitute the divine council that that does relate in some way. It has, it uh, plays a part. It helps inform uh, more fully uh, this idea of intercession of someone in the council with. Again, people right here on earth, saints, you know, holy ones, believers right here on earth.
0: Okay. The next question is from Greg. You briefly discussed magic in one of the podcasts on Acts. Mm -hmm. How does real magic actually work? How did the magicians in Egypt duplicate some of the works Moses did? What about the Ephesian magicians or even magic today? Do they recite incantations calling Mm -hmm. on demonic powers who perform the actual miracles? What is a Christian's response when we encounter something like this?
1: Well, I, I, would, I would suggest that the only coherent response to this is that hostile divine beings do indeed have real powers. Now, now while you could say, you know, frankly, without any real proof, that, that the Egyptian magicians in the story of Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh were doing just tricks, you know, human tricks like stage magic. I mean, you could say that. But again, there's, there's no actual proof in the passage to say that's all it was. While you can sort of go there, it, it's a little harder to do the same thing with the mentions of magic in the book of Acts, Acts 8, you know, 9 through 11, Acts 13, Acts 19, 19. Uh, those contexts clearly link the references to magic, to contact with or worship of other divine powers, you know, powers of darkness. And several of those are in the context of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Now, if you actually go to some of these passages and you look up the, the Greek term behind uh, magic used in them, uh, the, the term there is magia. It's easy to see where we get our word magic, you know, from that. And bedag, Bauer, Donker, Art, and Gingrich, note that this term refers to a rite or rights, rites, r i t e s, ordinarily using incantations designed to influence or control transcendent powers. So, in the in the Greco-Roman world, the classical world, uh, Greek language would have been the dominant language, of course. You you'd have this term used of specifically the use of incantations to contact or influence or control or manipulate or barter you know with some divine power against some entity. Now I want to I want to just pull up here briefly Clinton Arnold Clinton Arnold's Ephesians commentary. Now Clinton Arnold uh, is an evangelical New Testament scholar and he's probably done the most work uh, certainly in the evangelical orbit but arguably he's he's sort of one of the top 10 guys just in academia who have uh done a lot of work related to this question of magic. And in his uh, Ephesians commentary, he says this. I'm going to quote from this, and it's going to be a long quotation, but I think you'll find it interesting. He says, Uh, He's commenting here on the the image of Artemis, which is Diana of the Ephesians. Remember Acts in the 19th grade is Diana of the Ephesians, or maybe your English translation actually uses the term Artemis. If you've ever seen a picture of Diana or Artemis, it's this feminine goddess figure that looks like she has a hundred breasts. And so this is what Arnold is commenting on. They're not actually breasts, okay? They're something else. So here's what he says. The meaning of the rows of bulbous objects on the chest of Artemis has proved a mystery to interpreters. Some early Christian interpreters identified them as female breasts and saw this as an expression of a fertility motif. This interpretation has not been generally accepted because of the differences in shape, If you actually take a close look at them, numerous other ideas have been suggested such as eggs, grapes, nuts, and even testicles. The latter view has a number of prominent adherents because in some of the ancient religions, mutilated body parts were attached to the cultic image of a deity. The most convincing explanation yet has recently been offered by a scholar named Sarah Morris who teaches at UCLA, who concludes that the bulbous objects are comparable to leather goatskin pouches called kursha. These are known from Hittite magical practices. These little bags were filled with magical material and used as fetish objects. She observes that the Hittite deities associated with the kursha were often associated with protecting people and places and were frequently invoked in oaths and called upon in magical rites. She suggested an ancient Anatolian cult image at Ephesus, to which rows of such bags were attached, was the predecessor to the image of the Ephesian Artemis. As such, the bags functioned as symbols for fecundity, spiritual power, and protection. The bags may also provide a clue into understanding ancient testimony about magical words. Now, Arnold is going to reference something here called the Ephesian letters that were said to be inscribed on the cultic image of Artis, Artemis. So this is not a, a biblical text. These are this, this is going to be Greco-Roman pagan texts that scholars refer to as the Ephesian letters. So continuing with Arnold, he says, Morris believes that these magical words, which were used in spells and incantations, quote, could derive from Hittite phrases carried down over the centuries, unquote. According to Anaxalus, which is an ancient text, the Ephesian letters were contained in little sewn bags, which Morris thinks might be explained by the Corsia. By this, she suggests that not only did the Ephesian letters have an ancient pedigree in Anatolian, that is Hittite, magical practices, but they may have been contained in the little bulbous sacks attached to the cultic image of the Ephesian goddess Artemis. According to Luke, Okay, we're back in the biblical material now. This is Arnold still commenting. According to Luke, many people who were devotees of this cult became Christians during Paul's ministry there. In fact, so many people were turning to Christ that it was beginning to have an adverse effect on the sales of silver shrines to the goddess. This is what led to the guild of silversmiths raising the alarm that caused the mob uprising in the theater in Acts 19. That's page 21 from Arnold's commentary. I'm going to skip over to page 31 now. He says, One of the dramatic incidents that Luke narrates about Paul's ministry in the city involves a failed exorcism attempted by an itinerant Jewish exorcist and priest named Sceva. We talked about him in a previous podcast. When Sceva and his sons attempted to add the name of Jesus to their exorcistic formulae, the demonized man responded violently and the group was injured. According to Luke, this prompted a great fear and conviction within the believing community, and they brought out the magical texts they still possessed and burned them. In Luke's estimation, the value of the text that went up in flames that day was the equivalent of 50,000 days' wages. It is not at all surprising that this event happened in Ephesus, although it probably could have taken place in any city of the Roman Empire. Ephesus, though, had a reputation in antiquity as a place where magical practices flourished. Now, Arnold is going to refer to another book that he has written. What I'm going to do is, some of these, these texts I can provide for you on the website, uh, with this episode of the podcast, but the first one here, uh, or that that little statement about uh, how Ephesus was a place where magical practices flourished, that comes from Arnold's book, scholarly book called Ephesians: Power and Magic. It's kind of an expensive book, but if you can get it, I highly recommend it. Arnold continues here uh, in two sources that I'm going to post for you. He says, The practice of magic was predicated on a worldview that recognized the widespread presence and influence of good and evil spirits on every area of life. Magic represented a means of harnessing spiritual power and managing life's issues through rituals, incantations, and invocations. Our knowledge of the phenomena of magic has been facilitated greatly by the discovery of nearly 250 magical papyri in the sands of Egypt. These illustrate the kinds of rituals, spells, formulae, recipes for amulets, curses, and all the rest of the phenomenon that characterized Roman-era magical practices and techniques. The extant texts have been translated into English and are made available in a volume called the Greek Magical Papyri in Translation. In addition to these texts are numerous other witnesses to magic that include literary references to magical practices, so on and so forth. Now, I'm going to attach two sources that that the questioner and anyone else interested in this topic can read. One is Arnold's article on magic in the Dictionary of Paul and his letters, and the other one is the... His, also the author is Arnold, uh, his article on the magical papyri that I just read about from his source uh, in the Dictionary of New Testament Backgrounds. So, what we can conclude from all of this is that these references to magic are not just stage tricks. Okay. They were associated both in the New Testament text and also in texts outside the New Testament in Greco Roman uh, paganism with doing things, either uttering an incantation, making a little object, making a little spell or a potion or whatnot to uh, facilitate contact with demonic powers, with supernatural entities to again cajole them or barter with them to do something on your behalf. So uh, again, I, I don't know how we can just sort of take these references in the Bible and just say, oh, they were just doing doing the soft shoe you know with the hat and the cane and little you know stage tricks that uh, people probably could figure out or, or just knew what they were doing that isn't the way they're presented and so does the magic really work well that if spiritual powers demonic powers are paying attention we'll just put it that way uh, to solicitation the answer would be yes uh, they they actually were approachable through these means. Now, this takes me mentally back. I'm not going to get go into this very long, but a few years ago, actually it's probably about 10 years ago, I went to hear a paper uh, at an SBL meeting, Society of Biblical Literature, a regional meeting where a guy named Jordan Paper, a professor in, in the Northwest, was giving a paper. I had read Paper's book on polytheism called The Gods Are Many. Jordan Paper is a practicing polytheist. He's retired now from teaching, but uh, I still see him at time to time at at SBL meetings. I know what he looks like. He's a practicing polytheist, and he was very transparent about his quote-unquote faith. Okay, this is a scholarly meeting, and he's not holding anything back here. He says basically this only works if you solicit this kind of contact it doesn 't just happen, you have to want it, and you have to do things to solicit it and the powers I mean he would use these terms you know the the, the powers uh, the gods again, the spirits will respond if you are open to their to their contact to, to to what they can do for you and this was his faith, this is something he lived out every day and He just presented it like it was normative, you know, to a room full of scholars. And of course, everybody clapped nicely at the end. You know, it just made me think if you'd have presented something that would have been evangelistic about Jesus, they probably would have, you know, asked you not to come back. But the polytheism was okay. But again, this whole idea is still around today. And it's sort of by those who are involved in it. It still works the same way. So I don't know on what basis we would go, look back at ancient texts and say, ah, oh, this was just a lot of hokum. Uh, I think there's more to it than that.
0: Okay, the next one's from Michael. The ESV version of Matthew 24:15 and 16 says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And Michael's question is, does the language indicate that the holy place here is a physical temple or something else? Michael really doesn't care if it's a physical temple or not. He wants to follow the correct logic path no matter where it leads. The point of this question is, if the term holy place is referring to a physical temple, then A, doesn't that contradict the idea that the most high God doesn't live in a temple anymore, but in us? B, Isn't the reinstitution of animal sacrifices an abomination to Christ? Or C, the most important question for Michael, If the holy place is indeed a physical temple, is not really holy because God doesn't live there, and is in fact an abomination, does the language indicate that the holy place is only holy because of a past precedent? In other words, they consider it holy at the same time. So Jesus put it in terms that they could understand. It begs the question: Is the temple holy or not?
1: All right, there's there's a lot here. Um, again, the notion about there being a contradiction. I, I would say that the verse, you know, if you actually go back to Matthew twenty four fifteen and sixteen and look at the verse, it doesn't actually say God was living in the temple. Uh, it basically suggests only that the temple was considered sacred. In other words, for Jews. You know, they they sort of presume that the presence is there, or at least the presence, you know, the divine presence of the Old Testament is is doing something with the temple. It it, it it's a sacred thing, and that's kind of normal. A Jew would think that Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience. This is the Book of Matthew, again, which is very Jewish in, in its flavoring and its context. So Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience prior to Pentecost. Uh, if the context, again, some some would associate the uh, you know the, the temple as being you know, maybe you know, holding some sort of idolatrous uh, object uh, in terms of Matthew 24. In other words, that, that's a, that's a poor way of putting it. This way, in, in, if you look at Matthew 24 and you assume that this is describing an end times event uh, that's connected with Daniel 9 and the abomination, uh, some people will will assume that there's going to be an idol uh, put into this into this temple because. Yeah, you know, prior to Jesus' time in the intertestamental period, the Second Temple period, this is what happened uh, with Antiochus Epiphanes uh, when he outlawed things like circumcision and the Sabbath, you know, and he wanted to sacrifice a pig on the altar and put a you know an, an, an idol in the temple. They, uh, those who who look at Matthew twenty four and project it out into the far future essentially are looking for uh, some sort of mimicking of this. But again, the, the temple during the time of Jesus isn't going to be looked at that way because that's why during the intertestamental period we had all the Maccabean Wars. I mean, they were basically started this rebellion, it was started by Antiochus's abomination, and the temple was cleansed, and so on and so forth. So, a Jew living in Jesus' day isn't going to be looking at the temple, their temple, that way. Again, so when Jesus is actually talking, the immediate context would be the first century. Again, and Jews would have considered that temple sacred. But that's a little far afield. The verse itself makes no theological claim that the Spirit of God is living there in contradiction to what Paul is going to say after Pentecost. Uh, it it just it doesn't say that. But a Jew, again, who's not a Christian, and you know who, again, this is pre-Pentecost, uh, a, a Jew is sort of going to assume that, and then after Pentecost is when you get this language about the Spirit of God indwelling dwelling believers. So I understand that part of the question, but it, it's a little. It feels a little misplaced because it's not specific to the pre-post Pentecost issue. Uh, the second uh, element he says isn't isn't the reinstitution of animal sacrifices an abomination to Christ? Well, yeah, I would say so. It 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 would be, but again, Jesus is talking in the first century when he utters Matthew twenty-four to Jews, so it it can't by definition be a reinstitution of animal sacrifices. Now, the way the question is worded presupposes two things. One, uh, it presupposes that the questioner is reading the passage, again, in the distant future. uh, And so, that would be a reinstitution of sacrifices. So, it, it sounds like the questioner presumes the passage ha- is situated in the end times, which of course doesn't need to be the case, because when Jesus says that they're not in the end times. But second, even if it is in the end times, again, not... This isn't, this wouldn't be the millennial, uh, temple necessarily, but, you know, even if it's, if you have a temple out there in the future, which you know, a lot of Christians would put in the millennium, and some would, would just say it's, it's, it's also operating, operating in the tribulation before the millennium without getting into all the end time speculation here. Uh, even if you put it out in the distant future, then it would, it would still be Jews who are doing the sacrificing. And they wouldn't look at the sacrificing as reinstituting sacrifices in the sense that they're trying to denigrate the, the cross of Christ. They're not thinking about the cross of Christ at all. So if if you take Jesus and the cross out of the equation, there, there's no harm for the Jew getting to sacrifice again, because that's going to be something central, uh, because they're looking back at Old Testament theology. So Jesus isn't even in the picture. Uh, it, it, you only get this problem when you're a Christian and you attach you know, forgiveness and atonement to the work of Christ on the cross. And, th- and this is sort of a classic problem with, with uh, those who who want to affirm a, a premillennial system of eschatology and then they look back at Ezekiel 40 and 48 about a temple and that naturally begs the question of well what you know what about Ezekiel's talk about sacrifices? How can we bring back sacrifices? That would be an abomination because the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus sacrifice was once for all. Uh, and yeah, he he does, and I would agree with that. I I personally seen I don't take the uh, Ezekiel prophecy in chapters forty and forty eight as being uh, a, a literal thing that we should expect a temple to be rebuilt with sacrifices. There are all sorts of, of, of problems with it. The most obvious just is this one about you know, having to offer sacrifice again. And people are, you know, I've, I've read all the material in this, and, and, and the, the explanation is usually something like, well, you know, the people just need to, they need a visualization, they need an illustration, they need a, a, a picture of what Jesus did on the cross. Well, that that's just illogical. Why not just hand them a New Testament? I mean this is the way you and I learned about the gospel. I didn't I didn't need to see a, a sacrifice performed so that in my head it would go, "Oh, well that's what that must have been what the, the cross was about." I'm glad I saw that animal sacrifice so I could understand the gospel. You don't need that to understand the gospel at all. Again, just hand somebody a New Testament. Unless you you want to argue that the, there are no New Testaments anymore. That somebody destroys all the Bibles in the tribulation period or something like that, which again there's no Bible verse for. So the the, the whole concept of the sacrifice is coming back and being a memorial or an illustration or some kind of teaching tool. It just doesn't make any sense. Jews can be saved today. They don't need a sacrifice to understand the claims of the gospel, the claims of the cross. You also don't need sacrifices to come back for worship. Are we, are we to assume that all people everywhere worshiping God, uh, you know, believers worshiping God today? that the worship is somehow not genuine or inadequate because we don't have a temple in Jerusalem anymore. Again, it, it just doesn't make sense on all sorts of levels. So I I see that sort of thinking kind of lurking behind the question. Uh, so I would say, yeah, it, it is an abomination, you know, to, to do that as a Christian. But if you're a Jew, you're not thinking about that at all uh, when you, when you're looking at Matthew 24 or when the Jews were hearing it. And then the, the, the third part, I think uh, I didn't quite you know follow the question. I think there's a little, there's, there, there's something Kind of missing the question, at least as I recall it. Uh, if the holy place wasn't a physical temple, it's not really holy because God doesn't live there. Well, you know, yeah. I mean, you could you could sort of say that. That that part I think is understandable. But the Matthew passage again doesn't refer to the temple itself as an abomination. So they they would have they would have been thinking again. If you're a Jew in the first century, you're thinking that God has. Is, is either somehow residing in the holy of holies, or has some attachment to the temple, or or considers the temple a sacred thing and sacred space, and that you would be punished if you you know committed sacrilege against it, or something like that. So, in the mind of a Jew, it's going to be a holy place. And even the apostles, you know, after after Pentecost, after after the resurrection, after all these you know key uh, events, they're not looking to profane the space either. Again, they, they realize it is a a sacred object, even though they're going to, you know, Paul and others are going to say the Spirit of God really, you know, dwells uh, in us now. And some of the temple language Jesus uses in the New Testament uh, about the temple of his body, again, if you look at how that plays out, you know, the, 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 Jesus referring to the temple as his own body, well, the body of Christ, you know, after Pentecost, you know, is believers. And that is where the temple, that, that Believers corporately and individually are referred to as the temple by Paul in First Corinthians chapter three and chapter six and other places as well. It sort of makes sense again to have Jesus being the new temple and his his body corporately being the temple and his children individually being the temple as well. This is what the, the apostles describe, but that doesn't motivate them to, to again profaning the, the temple. They it's very clear they respect it, but theologically they're in a different place after Pentecost.
0: All right, our next question is from Chris in Australia. Once saved received Jesus into their heart by praying the sinner's prayer, always saved? Or is it possible to lose one's salvation for any reason?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would say it, it's not possible to lose salvation as though you do something and then it's taken away from you, or you again, you just it sort of leaves you. I, I do think you can turn your back on on salvation, though. Part of the problem is is really, and I'm not accusing Chris in Australia of this, but part of the problem is if you think about the way the question is worded, receiving Jesus into their heart by praying the sinner's prayer, you know the, the idea of, of receiving Jesus into your heart it's really not New Testament language it's just the way we sort of express the idea of salvation but we we've kind of turned salvation and conversion, a biblical theology of salvation and conversion, into an incantation uh, into a into into a prayer, you know, use the right words and then the magic works, you know, you're you're sort of in. Uh, My my position, I I think I could boil down to this statement. If you believe, if you believe, you know, if you embrace the gospel, if you trust the gospel, if you believe, you are eternally secure. If you don't, you're not. So if you believe, you are eternally secure. If you don't believe, you are not eternally secure. What I mean by that is you have to maintain your faith. And And I don't I'm not talking about works in any way. I think, you know, people have heard me enough now in this podcast and other contexts. Uh, I understand what the gospel is. It has nothing to do with human merit. Zero, nada, zilch. Okay. But you have to maintain your faith. In other words, you have to believe. So just like in the Old Testament, you couldn't have a believer like Abraham or David claim election or claim a covenant relationship and then go off and worship Baal. So now you can't just abandon your faith to choose another God or no God at all and still claim that you're part of the family of God. I mean, in the Old Testament, we had, again, this takes us into the whole context of election, which in the Old Testament I think is fundamentally misunderstood. Election in the Old Testament is not about salvation. Okay, It can't be by definition because lots and lots and lots of elect Israelites Went off and became apostates and worshiped Baal and other gods. That's why we had the exile. We do not have Baal worshipers in heaven. Okay. Baal worshipers are not part of the family of God. Election was not about salvation. It was about a status whereby you received the truth about the true God. And then you had to believe it. Okay. That that that's what election is. You know, you, election puts you in a, in a unique position among all the nations to receive the truth about the true God, but you still have to believe it. And lots of Israelites didn't. So they, yes, they they had they they had elect status, they had the covenants, and then they went off and worshiped Baal. Sorry, but the Old Testament is quite clear that you will be rejected. You you do not worship another God, and it's the same thing in in the New Testament. But the problem is, again, we've turned the doctrine of salvation into an incantation. You can't lose it through any sin for a, a simple reason. That which could not be gained by moral perfection can't be lost by moral imperfection. The issue is believing. You must believe. okay? And we all know that believers, you know, those who profess to believe anyway, uh, turn out to really really not believe. They, they they abandon their faith. They forsake their faith in, in the God of Israel and Jesus. And they go off and they worship something else. They adopt another faith or they, they don't have any faith at all. Again, the fact that they prayed a prayer, they said certain words at one point in their life, doesn't really mean a whole lot. Uh, it, it's a profession that they made. But the question is, do you believe or don't you? If you believe, you are eternally secure. If you don't, you are not eternally secure. So uh, let, let me just, are there other reasons why I think this way? If, if you go to Matthew 10, okay, if you go to Matthew 10, let me just uh, go there now to, to sort of set this up. But again, there's just things that are sort of obvious that we kind of miss. Matthew 10 begins this way, and he, Jesus, called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, heal every disease and every affliction, so on and so forth. Then the names of the apostles were, and we get the grocery list. Verse five, the twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them. And then beginning in verse five, when he sends them out, we get a, we get a long sort of rehearsal of various things Jesus instructed them about What's going on here? What do you do? you know when, when you go out here and, and you be my disciple and here's verse you go all the way to verses thirty two and thirty three listen to what Jesus said. He says this to the twelve disciples verse thirty two so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father, who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father, who is in heaven now I'd say. He's saying this to the disciples. I would say that the disciples again were were believers, but he's treating it seriously saying if you deny me, if you leave the faith, if you turn to another god or another or no god at all. The Father is not going to say, "Hey, good to see you. Glad to see you. You prayed a prayer. You said the right words at some point in your life." The question is, do you believe or don't you? Not did you use this, again an incantation at some point in your life? And again, he's saying this to the disciples. It, it, it's kind of shocking, but but there it is. Uh, probably at this point, there are going to be people in the audience who are thinking of language like you know when Paul talks about being sealed with the Holy Spirit under the day of redemption. Uh, again, that that idea means that the Spirit, the presence of the Spirit indwelling believers, is the validation or evidence of of salvation. It doesn't mean That you no longer have to believe. Okay. It it doesn't mean that continued faith is now optional. Sealing means you were marked by the Spirit. You bear the name. Again, you are you are aligning yourself with with the gospel, with Jesus. Again, think about what Paul says in other places. Okay, Paul's the same guy who wrote about the sealing of the Spirit, and I'm saying, look, the sealing of the Spirit language doesn't give you permission to not believe anymore. Okay, one, you're sealed. You're in. Doesn't really matter if you go off and worship another. Yes, it does matter if you if you abandon the gospel. Okay, you must believe. If you believe, you're eternally secure. If you don't, you're not. Doesn't have anything to do with works. Doesn't have anything to do with whether you sin or not. We all do. John says if you don't, if you say you're not a sinner, you're a liar. I mean, all this stuff. It has nothing to do with works and merit. It has everything to do with what you believe, what your faith is in. Romans 11, okay, here's another one. Paul is writing to Christians, okay, Christians in Rome. And he's talking about Israel and Israel and the church, this back and forth in Romans 9 and 11. Well, here's Romans 11, 20 to 23. He says, Israel was broken off. The Israelites were broken off because of their unbelief. But you, again, you Christians here in Rome, stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches neither will he spare you. In other words, if God forsook Israelites who went off and apostatized, you're going to get the same treatment. Verse 22, Note then the kindness and severity. You got polar opposites here. The kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they'll be grafted back in. For God has the power to graft them in again. I mean, I don't know how much clearer Paul could be here. He's telling Christians, look, you can look at those Jews over there, and they're the outsiders now, and the, and the, the Christians now we're the ones who are the family. we're the people of God now. And Paul's saying, look, don't get proud. Fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. You must continue to believe. This is why Paul and other New Testament writers constantly talk about remaining steadfast in the faith. Okay, Colossians one twenty three. Again, I, I, need, I think I need to belabor this a little bit, because again, what I'm saying might you know, be controversial to, to what, especially in an evangelical context, what people have heard. But there's a reason this other stuff is in the New Testament. Paul says in Colossians one twenty three, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting, From the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Again, verse 22, you're reconciled if you indeed continue in the faith, so on and so forth. Paul expects believers to continue because the the Spirit is there to help them. But he also, again, knows because he wrote, he's the same guy who wrote Romans 11, says, if you don't continue in your faith, what happened to the Israelites will happen to you. He, now, you know, look at what Colossians one twenty three doesn't say. I mean, it, Paul's saying, look, it doesn't say that you're eternally secure if you profess Christ or you pray to prayer uh, and then you, you 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 turn away. It says you're eternally secure if you believe the gospel, if you remain steadfast in that belief, and you don't turn away. But Paul doesn't, you know, he doesn't it, he doesn't say, well, you're you're okay if you don't sin, or you're okay if you don't struggle with the flesh. You're okay, you know, if you're perfect. That has nothing to do with it. It's always about continuing in your faith. Salvation never depends on your performance, ever. Again, what you couldn't gain by moral perfection, you can't lose by moral imperfection. It's about believing loyalty. And that is true across the Testaments. I spend some time in the unseen realm talking about this. It's the same thing in the New. Now, I should add a few thoughts here. I don't think, for instance, other other verses are going to pop into people's heads. I think Paul had every expectation the Spirit would bring believers to the end of the journey. Philippians 2, he that has began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, if you make it to the end, the Spirit had a role in that. The Spirit carried you through. Okay, but that verse does not give you license to no longer believe, is what I'm saying. Uh, Hebrews 6. I, don't, I personally don't think Hebrews 6 teaches that if believers do lapse into unbelief, then they can never return. I don't believe that at all. I think that's a misreading of the passage. Uh, if you go back and, and look at Hebrews 6, 4-6, to 6, it says this. Uh, the writer says, It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. I would say there's nothing in the passage that indicates God would refuse a repentant, believer who had lapsed. Because while we were yet sinners, while we were hostile to God, Paul says elsewhere, God accepted us. He accepted our faith. God wants sinners to believe. John 3.16 doesn't say whoever believes except the ones who once did and then didn't might have everlasting life. No, whoever believes, God is going to embrace. Now, the impossibility I think referred to in Hebrews 6, refers to the finality of the work of Jesus on the cross. In other words, that's the only means of salvation for sinners. There is no plan B. The point of the language of Hebrews 6, 4-6 to is simply that there is nothing more that God can do to secure salvation for lost sinners. It is impossible to add anything to what Jesus did on the cross. When Jesus said it was finished, he meant it. To add something else to salvation, some plan B, again, would be to put what Jesus did on the cross to an open shame. So, Hebrews 6 isn't saying it's impossible for someone who lapses to come back to belief. It is possible, and God will accept them. What it's saying, it's telling us that those who turn their back on the gospel, they don't have any other hope. There is nothing else that can bring about salvation. The unbeliever must believe in the thing they currently don't believe in. There is no other way. God has nothing else to offer except what happened at the cross. And so we're back to what I said at the beginning. If you believe, you are eternally secure. If you don't believe, you're not. The issue is, do you believe or not? And we all know people at various stages of the journey. You know, they made a profession before. Now they're off being an atheist. Or they're off doing this or that. Or Don't don't try to parse their experience. The answer is the same whether you know you think they were saved or not, or not really saved before. What the answer is the same. The answer is believe the gospel. I mean, to, to people no matter where they're at, people who've never heard it, people who've heard it once, believed it, and now they've they've turned their back on it. The solution is the same. It's identical. Believe the gospel. If you believe, okay, you will be eternally secure. You will be with the Lord. If you don't, if you turn away from it, you won't be. And and this this isn't never having a doubt. This is an act of turning to another God or turning to no God at all. This is an act of the will I'm talking about. I'm not talking about ever having a doubt flash through your mind. Okay, everybody has that. What I'm talking about is a decision to turn away voluntarily, to worship another god. We do not have Baal worshipers in heaven. And we do not have people who don't believe in the gospel in heaven. We don't have people who reject the gospel in heaven is probably a better way to say it. Jay in Midland, Texas, wants to know how
0: the Shema, Deuteronomy six four, if it's related to the divine council, And he wants to know that because he read the study notes for the Faith Life Study Bible that the translation of the Shema is problematic Mm -hmm. And that there are five translation options for the verse, thinking that you wrote the study note. I did. (laughs) You got him wondering (laughs) if possibly the Lord is one is somehow related to divine counsel concepts.
1: Yeah, it it is. And I'm going to quote here from the Unseen Realm for this one. It's going to be on page 339. And the page 339 is what I'm talking about in the book is where James, the, the book of James, references the Shema. And so I'll, I'll just pick it up on page 339, and then there's going to be a footnote, and I'll read the footnote. So I wrote here, early in our study, when I introduced the divine Council. I noted that the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4, the theological creed of Israel, was worded in such a way that the existence of other gods was not denied. And the quote is, the Lord our God is one. And that the you know just rabbit trailing here that that part's clear the reason why there's five different translations uh, translation options for Deuteronomy 6:4 is that there are no verbs in the verse Okay that, that that's what makes it notoriously difficult. But what is clear is it says the Lord our God is one. So the the reality of other gods is not denied and elsewhere in Deuteronomy they're actually going to be affirmed, okay? Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 32, all that. Continuing on with what I wrote here, Paul's wording in 1 Corinthians 8 has the same feel. In fact, most scholars believe that Paul specifically has the Shema in mind. This is where Paul says, you know, for us there's, you know, for for others there are, you know, many gods, many lords, but for us there is one. You know, one Lord, one God, all that stuff. Now here's the footnote, this footnote number 9 on page 339. And it's it's a fairly lengthy one, but I'm going to read the whole thing. James also has the Shema in view when he writes, quote, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder, unquote. That's James 2.19. Now note that James does not say, The demons believe in God and therefore tremble. What he says, this verse is often misread, what he says is that they believe that God is one, and that's what frightens them. Now a fundamental theological point of the Shema was that God had offered redemption to and through only one nation and community, Abraham's descendants. Israel had been created by supernatural intervention after God had disinherited the nations of the earth, Genesis 10 at the Tower of the ba- Tower of Babel event, Genesis 11. Deuteronomy 32:8-9, a passage at which we've looked at many times in the book, in the Unseen Realm. When he divided mankind, God fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is his allotted inheritance. Now, after the judgment at the Tower of Babel, God called Abraham, Genesis 12.1-3, and these two events are juxtaposed back to back. When God called Abraham and promised the creation of his portion, the nation of Israel, through Abraham and Sarah, he disinherited all the other nations, allotting them to the other heavenly beings, the sons of God. Those divine beings are elsewhere referred to as the host of heaven, the gods, Elohim, and quote-unquote demons, the Shadim, in Deuteronomy. You have Deuteronomy 4, 17, 29, all those chapters. Old Testament theology, continuing with a footnote here, Old Testament theology, puts these sons of the Most High, Psalm 82, six, under judgment for not ruling justly and seducing the Israelites to worship them instead of the one true God. There are two important theological points related to the Shema in all of this that touch on James 2.19. First, all the people of the nations under the dominion of Lesser Elohim were outside the plan of salvation. A Jewish follower of Jesus, in other words, the audience of the book of James, according to James 1, 1 1-3, knew and rightly affirmed the Shema. Their faith in Jesus did not nullify the creed that the Lord our God is one, since Jesus was the incarnate Yahweh. After the event of the cross, Abraham's seed was all believers, Jew and Gentile together, Galatians 3. So believing God is one— was still an expression of faith for a Jewish follower of Jesus that there was only one God who could provide salvation, and he had done just that through the work of Jesus. Second thought is that the rebellious sons of God also knew that that's what the Shema meant. It reminded them that they were under judgment, sentenced to die like men in Psalm 82, and forever banished from the presence of the true God. That, is what frightens them not the reality of god's existence so that's the end of the footnote so in other words the shema you know when when the when the when the, the, the demons know that god is one and that scares them it scares them because that statement means not only that there's one way of salvation it also means that there that god is the god of all the nations he is the god of all humanity all the nations. And it's a reminder, the Shema, the Lord our God is one, is a reminder to the demonic powers that what they possess, their dominions, are going to be lost. They are going to be displaced. They are going to be judged. They are going to die like men. Okay, they understand that even though it isn't the case now, that everything is sort of subsumed under the God of Israel as was originally intended. They know that ultimately this is where everything is leading. Israel is Yahweh's portion now. Yahweh is the God of Israel. But ultimately, ultimately, God will be the God of everything and everyone in the end. And so the, the fact that the Lord our God is one, even now under these circumstances, even when we you know, have, have dominion, even when we are, are free to do what we do in rebellion against him, the, the, the idea of the Shema, again, that everything will be subsumed under one God, and all people, all divine beings, all nations are accountable to him. That's what freaks them out. So yeah, the Shema, uh, again, filtered in this case, as I've answered the question, filtered through James, is part of the divine council worldview. And again, in, in this case, the, the, tra- the trajectory I took here, uh, if, you're a, if you're one of the gods who are in, in rebellion, it, it frightens you for that reason because it's a promise. It's not just a statement. It's a promise of things to come as well as an ideal of what should be. And that, that dispels their doom. Okay, Mike, we've got two questions left. I picked two
0: current questions from Margot in Santa Barbara, California, just because they relate to one of the a recent podcasts, our most popular show to date, almost, uh, the Fern and Audrey episode. So, her first question, Margot, uh, in the Naked Bible Podcast, number 68, Interview with Fern and Audrey, Mike mentioned that one of the reversals in Scripture can be seen in the four women listed in Jesus' genealogy. The text hints that these four women represent a reversal of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Can Mike provide more detail?
1: Uh, there, there's no short article that I can post on this. There's only a dissertation. Um, and I don't know that the dissertation is publicly available, and, which means I, I'm not really authorized um, to post it. The dissertation is, uh, is written by a woman named Amy Richter in 2010. The title of her dissertation just tells you all you need to, to know. Uh, the Enochic Watcher's Template and the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, she's the one who goes through the genealogy, showing the connections, the hooks back into the Enoch uh, Watcher story and the Genesis six story, and uh, terminology related to the giants and the giant clans that are actually in the genealogy of Jesus through uh, these four women. In other words, through through the, the 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 life circumstances of these four women. I would I would say though that the best summary of that in really sort of simple pared down terms is actually in my novel, the portent uh, that would, that would be chapter 57 of the portent. There's um, the characters are having a discussion about again, some, some, uh, I don't know. I don't want to give away too much here. It, it's, it's um the characters having a discussion in the wake of something they've learned about the birth of Jesus in um in both astral prophecy and also Jewish tradition how how those things align uh, basically that Jesus in Jewish tradition Jesus and Noah shared a birthday again which creates this pre-flood link between the two figures and so the the, the characters in the novel are discussing this and they get into the genealogies of Matthew the the, the main character Brian Basically, has his his memory jogged and saying, "Oh yeah, you know the, the genealogy of Matthew is, is sort of saying the same thing as Jewish tradition. It links Jesus back to uh, Genesis six, you know, in, in an odd sort of way." And so he goes through that, and it's only a couple of pages, and it's in the, it's set in terms of a conversation. But that conversation, I actually based on the work of Richter's dissertation. So I would say, if you want sort of a, a real quick overview of what in the world I'm talking about there, <laughs> I would say get the portent and read chapter 57. It, it, it's it's probably the best I can offer. Now, if you subscribe to the Divine Council Bibliography, the Bibliography Project, Richter's dissertation uh, will be part of that. But it, it's something that will be, uh, I can't just release on the internet, it's going to be behind a uh, a password-protected wall. So right right now, that's about the best I can do with that one. Okay, her second question
0: is, in Mike's "What's Next?" listing of future topics at more he writes, "Head covering First Corinthians 11. because <laughs> oh of the, here we go. <laughs> because of the angels. This one you could never do in a church. It has nope. to do with ancient conceptions of sexual fidelity and fecundity. Would you uh, she would appreciate some articles taking this approach, and is there a tie-in to the divine council worldview?
1: Yeah, again, this is again this is stuff under copyright because it comes from a journal. Um, I would say, you know what, I, I I would say to this questioner, email me, and I'll, I'll give you the articles for that, and I'll throw in Richter's dissertation as well. Um, I don't know if you want to wade through all that material because in the case of uh, the gospel of Matthew the hooks back to Genesis 6. There is no light reading for that other than the portent, you know, chapter 57. And it's really the same. The same thing is true for, uh, for this one. There are three articles that deal with this. It, there were three articles sort of exchanged. You know, one author wrote one, then another guy responded, and then the, the first author responded to that response uh, over the course of a few years in uh, in the scholarly journal, Journal of Biblical Literature. Uh, I, I'll, I'll, I'll send you the articles, but I can't post them. Now, back to the question. Yeah, yeah there is a tie-in uh, in the Divine Council worldview, but... It actually isn't stated in any of the articles, but I'll I'll just I'll set it up like this. <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny because when on my trip out to uh, to visit Fern and Audrey a few weeks ago, this was on the list of of our topics to discuss. I I, I gave the group a whole list of things that you know will, would be in book two, you know, after the unseen realm. And this is the one everybody wanted to do because of the nature of it. So. Uh, We we went through these articles, but in in a nutshell, Paul's vocabulary for the head covering in 1 Corinthians 11 shows up in Greco-Roman medical texts. And in those texts, the term refers to genitalia. And you know again context of of, of sex and reproduction, you know, or, or infertility versus fertility, that kind of thing. So Greco-Roman medical texts like Hippocrates, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, this kind of thing. The, the the actual term for the head covering shows up in this literature, and there's really something to that. In the first of these three articles, the author basically says this is how we need to understand what Paul's talking about. He's using this term to refer again. You know, back to something sexual, something that has to do with genitalia and whatnot, uh, to argue for modesty and sexual fidelity and that sort of thing. But but you could never go through this in church and really make the points that need to be made because it, it's it's pretty explicit uh, language, you know, in in the article. But in a in a medical context, so the point of the head covering with that backdrop is again sexual modesty and fidelity in marriage. But the sexual nature of the material led me, when I read the article and, and just really thought it was fascinating, it led me to contact the writer of, of the original article and ask if he thought that Paul's advice in First Corinthians 11 to take care about the quote-unquote head covering had something to do with his line, and it does. Paul connects the two. He connects the head covering uh, logic he says, now you, you, you need to be modest here, you need to you need to avoid this or that, quote, because of the angels. So I asked the the author, I said, do you think that the, the sexual context here and this whole head covering decision because of the angels has, has some connection to the sin of the watchers, the sin of the sons of God in Genesis 6, which was a sexual violation? And the author said he did. The author agreed with that. He said, yeah, I, I, I think that is the case. You know, he didn't, that wasn't what the article was about. But he and I were tracking, you know, right on that point. And you know, to really unru- you know unpack this, I'd have to devote a whole podcast to this one, since it would involve reading lengthy excerpts from this article, and of course would involve a disclaimer on the on the nature of the material as well. But I would say, if if you want those articles, I will send them to you. I, I should tell you right now, though, that th- these are articles from a scholarly journal. If you don't have a bit of a handle on Greek. They may it may be really rough reading but I I still kind of think that uh maybe if you knew at least the alphabet you could probably uh track with the author here but the the, the key idea is that Paul's vocabulary shows up in Gre- Greco-Roman medical texts and he's arguing uh, again a very a very pre-scientific very weird very convoluted logic here because they 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 believed Hippocrates believed that the length of a woman's hair had something to do with her ability to conceive. Because the, the hair on a woman's head, this is going to sound totally bizarre, but this is this is what you see in Greek medical texts, using the terminology Paul uses here. They believed that, that the longer a woman's hair was, that that helped draw the semen after sex into the place where it needed to go so that the the child deposited they don't know anything about genetics or anything like this, so that so that after sex the woman had a greater chance of conceiving if her hair was longer. And so you you don't wanna since hair was associated with Conception. You don't want to leave your you don't want to you don't want to leave your head uncovered and all. That. Again, it's really hard to explain with without going through the terminology and going through the discussion. But it, again, it, it, it's quite explicit because they had this wacky scientific, you know, pre scientific idea of um, the role a woman's hair played in her ability to conceive and and how how the whole how it helped how it helped uh, the semen do what it needed to do. <laughs> Uh, Again, like I said, it's really difficult to try to explain this uh, without going through all of the data. But it's fascinating. It makes a lot of sense. makes more sense than anything I've ever read, frankly, on the head covering issue. But it comes from a worldview that is so different than ours that doesn't align really in any way with – with how we know where babies come from and how you need genetic material from both the male and the female and it has to come together. And you don't have the planting metaphor where a child is deposited in a woman and then it grows. And the, the whole thing is predicated on a pre-scientific worldview. But if you, if you understand that worldview, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 makes total sense and it relates. And then Paul throws in this line, Hey, this, I'm, I'm telling you this because of the angels. And that harkens right back again to the sin of the watchers so maybe we'll do a podcast on that at some point Uh, if you email me I will give you the articles Uh, but again it they might be difficult to follow depending on on your ability to handle Greek so I I guess I should just leave it at that
0: I'm going to hold you to that doing a podcast on that uh... (laughs) yeah
1: our first disclaimer (laughs) (laughs) our first little little explicit next to a podcast (laughs) Uh, we'll right. make history there, yeah.
0: Well that's all of the questions, Mike. We're, okay. Wanna thank you for answering those questions. And uh earlier you alluded to the bibliography project. Do you have an update about that?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I I have decided again to use the the method that Trey discovered using the website to add tags. It is clunkier, but I've I've worked on it the last two days and I can do uh, sixty. I can tag sixty entries in an hour. And so if I do that every day. <laughs> an hour a day for the rest of, of the, of the calendar year, uh, I will complete the bibliography project by the end of the year. So I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to, to, to give it an hour a day and to add the tags and finish the thing up by the end of the year. So, so people will have my tags, uh, for the material. And and then it's done. No more Dino. Then no it, more. then it's done. Yeah. Well, Dino can't help me here. People have, have written me and said, you know, we want your tags and, sure. and not someone else. And, and I get that, mm-hmm. you know, it, but I just I had to try it out and so I yeah I can do 60. I need to do 60 a day to finish it by the end of the year and I can do that in an hour. I've done it two days in a row now. Uh so I know I can do it. It's it's not hard. It's just it, the process is a little clunkier than than the uh than the app that we were using.
0: That's impressive dedicating an hour a day. Do, do you dedicate an hour a day of exercising too? <laughs>
1: No, I don't. But I, I do that three days a week. Okay, so you'll tag
0: bibliography, but you won't exercise. More, yeah, I will do that more than I than I work out. That is true. Okay, and also you have a new event that you oh, want yeah. to. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, we have a we got confirmation of an event uh, in Sarasota, Florida for January. Uh, the dates look again. I'm I'm just waiting for a, a confirmation email, uh, but the dates have already been proposed to me and I accepted. So January 29th. And the thirtieth, uh, it'll be either one of those days or both. Uh, when I get again the final confirmation email, I will post the, uh, the the details on the events calendar on my website. But if you're near Sarasota, Florida, again the end of January 2016, uh, we hope to see you there. And again, the, the, the location of the church uh, I'll put on my website. So go up and look there. If you if you live in that part of the country, uh, I will be in your neighborhood.
0: Okay, that sounds good. Well, Mike, we finally got the PayPal donations on the website. So if you would prefer to support our show uh, via PayPal or just credit card, using your debit card, you can go to the NakedBiblePodcast.com website, click support, and you'll see there where you can either click a link to go to our Patreon page and donate that way, or you can donate either a monthly or a one-time donation via PayPal. Those instructions are on the website so we appreciate everybody to date who's generously given to the show
1: yeah honestly. absolutely I, yeah. I, you know i should add to i appreciate people who have posted reviews on amazon and if you've read the unseen realm or you know any of my books you know any of the novels or the, the dare you not to bore me with the bible book anything like that it you may not think that that's really doing anything much to help but uh it actually does and in the case of the unseen realm uh, it, it's actually pretty important uh, to have a, a good number of reviews up there um that the book i've heard has been uh, you know I, I just don't have the details here in front of me and so i at the risk of getting something wrong i'm going to make this real short but the book has been nominated for some sort of evangelical book award for some some agency but but, but i know enough to know that one of the things they look at is you know are people reading the book? You know what do they say? So reviews on on a place like Amazon are actually pretty important. They they do help uh, promote the book and they help people within the industry who are looking at the thing uh, to take notice, and that helps get the book in into stores. It helps uh bookstore owners decide whether they want to they want to purchase some and keep it in stock so that it's in a physical place and not just Amazon. So reviews are actually pretty important. So I would encourage people to, you know, if you enjoyed the book, you know, go up there, post a review. Uh that actually is more helpful than you might think.
0: And Mike, next week we're gonna double down and do another Q and A show because we've got so many questions. We need to chip away, and I feel like we got to get to some of these questions we haven't yeah. gotten to since the summer. So we're going to double down and do another Q and A for next week.
1: It'll it'll just make more people cry out for Leviticus, you know. <laughs> <we> <laughs> and that's two. right. So.
0: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay, Mike. Is there anything else?
1: No, I like think that's discuss? it. Okay. And again,
0: I want to thank Mike for answering our questions, and I want to thank you for listening to the Naked Bible podcast. God bless.
1: thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com.
0: To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to
1: www.brmsh.com.